Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Going for Two, the official podcast of the Extra Points newsletter. Uh, I am your intrepid host and publisher of said newsletter, Matt Brown. I am glad to be back in my own house behind a microphone here. Uh, Brian, I don't know about you. Did you go anywhere over Memorial Day weekend? Because I did, and it did not go well. Yeah, you know, I, you know, between my wife and I, you know, we, we usually like to travel in off time. So yeah. going out over Memorial Day weekend doesn't appeal to either of us. So we, we, we <laughs> stayed local. Uh, and if, if we're going to go somewhere, it'll probably be uh, in, in the middle of the month. But uh, it's certainly fun to follow your travails uh, on the road. Well, that's for uh, listen, sure. I'm glad you guys all had fun. I, I, I haven't seen, I hadn't seen my sister in, in almost two years. My grandmother lives in Cleveland. So I thought, Hey, you know, my kids haven't gone, uh, left the house here in a little while. Let's get in the car. Great American road trip. Let's go drive to drive to Cleveland, see some college friends. Uh, car broke down outside of Toledo. And I'm sure Toledo is a lovely place, but that uh, the uh, experiencing it from the, the the shoulder of Highway 80 uh, is probably not the, the best way to experience it. It's, it's been a mess, but it's good to be back here. And it's good to, you know, kind of to get replugged into writing a newsletter and talk about what's going on here after the being away from the computer for a couple of days, which is, I, I'm assuming it's similar here for you. It's hard to do for us to actually peel ourselves away from Twitter and from the news cycle. And then when you get two and a half days away or three days away, because you're attending to some other crisis, you can kind of look at everything in maybe a new light. Absolutely. And I think the, the only way I can truly unplug is if I go to a di different continent, like if, if I'm in Asia or Europe or something like that to where the time zones just don't work, that's really the only way I can truly unplug from this mass of college existence. But, yeah. uh, you know, the, luckily for you, there there wasn't a whole lot going on uh, towards the end of last week, but there's still news in college athletics because let's face it, that that that's hamster wheel. It never stops right now. It, it doesn't even in the proverbial slowest time here of the year. You just gave me an idea for maybe my next business act uh, it, after, I, you know, extra points gets gets sold off to ESPN and we're, we're both rich. We should start a tour company just to journalists to get them out of the country so their phones don't work or deep in the woods. Plus, it would be funny to see other sports writers try to survive in the woods for a little bit. But I, I, there, there was <laughs> there's one thing I do want to talk about a little bit that was a, a relatively large development that happened before I left. I touched on this a little bit in extra points. And I'm assuming you saw this. You, did, Brian, did, did you see the press release here, press release here from Senator Murphy and Senator Sanders office about the college athlete right to organize act? Did you see anything about this? I, I did. And I uh, actually have it pulled up uh, in front of me as well. And it was interesting to see because, uh, you know, I, it seems like one of these bills or, or proposed bills comes along and pretty much on, on clockwork every other month. And and it seems like this is just the latest. But, uh, you know, Senator Murphy has been, you know, really hands on in this space in general. So it, it's actually interesting to see more of a concrete proposal, not only out of his office, but uh, as, as well, uh, Senator Sanders. There was three representatives on the House side as well. Yeah, I I. Uh yeah, my, my kind of read on this is that there are senators who are who care very deeply about college athletics and college athletics reform. And there are senators who don't but are willing to kind of lend their name to the to the effort, especially if, if other members of their party seem to care very deeply about this. And then there are some that are totally ambivalent. And I, I would I think it's fair to categorize Murphy as perhaps the most singularly invested U.S. senator in this specific issue, not just about name, image and likeness, but about college athletics reform broadly and generally. And, and that's that I think that's what makes this particular bill unique 
Because so much of the legislative efforts, I think, that you and I have talked about and read about and, and uh, ad nauseum over the last year and a half, I think, have been there to address a very specific kind of wrong, uh, to, to address a, a specific kind of, 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 of exploitation, this idea that an athlete is unable to benefit from the same economic rights that everybody else has, namely being able to monetize their likeness. Uh, and that is that you've had a couple of, of these name image likeness bills or a couple of federal things that have, a, a, you know, healthcare or transfers or, or some other unrelated issues tacked onto it. But the bulk of the, the discourse, if you will, about college athletics reform has been on this issue. And I feel like the, the, the proposal here from from Senators Murphy and Sanders is the biggest broadside Oh, against that entirely. Like, you know, forget this, this narrow bit of, of, of economic uh, injustice here. This kind of takes aim at everything by, by, by going after the core tenet that it seems like the NCAA and schools are trying to protect this idea of, of amateurism. Um, I, and I'm, I mean, I'm making finger quotes a little bit here. I know that podcasting is a visual medium and all, but but I mean, we can well, how we define amateurism has obviously evolved over 100 years. But if people are literally employees, like you can't say that term anymore, like then then it really the cat really is out of the bag. Right. It, well, I mean, that is kind of the, the big thing the NCAA has been pushing back against really since they, they coined the term student athlete was was to be labeled employees. And what I, what I find interesting about not not j- even just this bill, but how much of the conversation has been emanating out of particularly the, the northeast of the country. You know, we, we look at the states and that have really pushed NIL and, and a lot of those laws on the state level. Where are those laws coming from? They're coming from the south. But from the senators uh, and, and the representatives, we really have not seen that on the national level. The leadership on this issue has come from, uh, you know, Chris Murphy, who's Connecticut, obviously Bernie Sanders from Vermont. Uh, the three co-sponsors on the House side of this are from New York, Michigan and Massachusetts. Not exactly, you know, football hotbed state, the state's there. So, yeah, take what, that, it, Michigan. It's, it's, that's right. Not a football I mean, hotbed. It, uh, well, I'm not going there. I'm not. Uh, I, I, I'm just I, saying. I am. But, I am Brian, this, is, this, is my, this is my show, too. There we, there, okay, it's in the ether. Fair. Continue. Sorry. Any, anyway, you know, like <laughs> I, I'm just I, I'm fascinated to see that not only this push, but just kind of the general push in, in the conversation at the national level, which, let's face it, the NCAA has been focused on that. This is what they have been trying to do for for weeks. They really have not gotten anywhere. I think they've actually gone in reverse, uh, if anything, in terms of losing traction on the issue nationally in terms of uh, what's going on in Washington. And, you know, frankly, it, it's, you know, being, you know, being led by a lot of these people in the Northeast. Whereas when you look at the stateside issues that that uh, the NIL bills, um, certain other athlete uh, compensation issues uh, are coming from, it, it's being led from the South. And we really haven't seen the senators in those states step up and, and react to what, what Murphy, what Sanders, what some of these other senators are doing as well. I mean, I, I don't think you have to be a, a subscriber to the Cook political report or need a, need a bachelor's in political science to, to kind of guess here that most U.S. senators from the Southeast are not going to be on board with an extremely aggressive expansion of the National Labor Relations Board and a bill that would significantly expand the number of people in this country that can unionize. If you look, you know, where where are the parts of the country that are generally least, uh, you know, excited about organized labor? That's the Intermountain West and the Southeast, baby. Like, that's not where you're going to see this. And I think you and I both know 
at the state level where you're seeing state house inertia about name, image, and likeness. That's not because state legislators of both political parties across the country have suddenly had a change of heart about college about college sports and college athletics reform. It's because in some parts of the country, there's a really strong political push to make sure that state U isn't at a disadvantage. And when the AD calls you up, you move. That doesn't exist in Vermont. That, I mean, honestly, here in Illinois, I can, where, where I think we are going to have a name, image, and likeness bill that goes into effect in July, um, that was has not really been part of the conversation for months. It, it's going to get passed at like the absolute last minute, and that's only because we have like Napoleon Harris in our in our state house, you know, pushing pushing for it. It's that dynamic doesn't exist with the U.S. Senate. Like I, I'll, I'll say this right now. Like and I, I called around a little bit. This bill is not going to get passed. There's not 50 Democratic votes for it. And there's no way in hell any Republican is going to support something here that blows past the red line that almost every athletic administrator I've talked to over the last two years has said. We don't want to uh, to our the, uh, all of our college athletes to be considered employees. If we need to let them have name, image, likeness, and we need to change some of the benefits that, that they get, if we have to give up some of that authority to the federal government, we're going to complain about it the whole time. But that's not a structural threat. But we would go to the Supreme Court and like not just the Big Ten and the ACC, but like the America East and the Big West do not want their tennis players to be considered employees. Uh, And that would be a big fight. And if those ADs and presidents and coaches are calling their senators, uh, not a whole lot of people that have the juice to ignore them uh, like you might if you're in Vermont or New Hampshire or Maine or Connecticut. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting, too, that this this bill kind of came out uh, really about a month after we, we saw a recent uh, organization push uh, with Amazon, you know, and how yeah. much of that dominated the conversation nationally, more in the political spectrum in terms of what that unionization push meant, uh, especially down in the south where it started in, in Alabama. But, um, you know, I think it, it kind of reinforces that this issue, it, it's not going away. And really, the NCAA has lost their grip on controlling the narrative. And I think that's one reason why you saw kind of in reality to this bill, D1 Council has, has come out and essentially said that, uh, you know, ultimately they're going to try to pass something if it's possible uh, at, at one of their late June meetings, and that will eventually go into effect on July 1. Uh, so at least those athletes in some, certain other states that are not going to have NIL bills, uh, certain other protections, they're going to get something in June and yeah. I think it, or in, in July 1st. And I think we're, we're kind of moving towards the NCAA, just kind of dragging their feet again and, and really trying to kind of throw out uh, a certain solution that maybe is not perfect, but at least kind of gets them over the hump short term while they can work with senators and work with the folks in Washington in terms of that long term solution they ultimately want that kind of governs the rest of the country. Yeah. But on, on NIL specifically, I certainly think that that's where we're going. But where this particular bill, I think, is worth dedicating additional time talking about is, is not because either of us think it's likely this is going to happen. I would be over the moon shocked if it becomes legal or federal law changes that would allow all college athletes, uh, even if we define college athlete in this particular case as a division one athlete getting a full scholarship. And from my reading of the, the college right to organize act uh, that, that, that act has a more expansive definition, but even if we just define it there, I don't think that that's going to happen this year, next year in four years. Maybe longer than that, who knows? If I could predict that, you know, my ad rates would be different. But 
It's, it's interesting. One, because you're, you're right. I think this is this is another example of maybe the Overton window shifting a little bit and the, the proverbial NCAA losing control of the narrative and the conversation. If we go back to just, I don't know, six years ago, and if you were somebody that was adamant about expanding name, image, and likeness rights, you'd be considered a little bit of a radical, right? Like uh, there, there weren't many mainstream forces pushing for that. Um, and now it's, it's so much of a mainstream position that almost the, the most conservative and institutionalist voices are, are, are calling for it. On, the, on that exact narrow economic issue, the, uh, the the kind of bounds of what would be considered an acceptable opinion within college sports, that changed really quickly. Wouldn't you agree? It has changed really quickly. I mean, it's not even that issue. Even go back to alcohol on campus. I mean, oh, yeah. it used to be you used to, to to be able to see a drop of alcohol in in a football stadium used to be so rare. And nowadays, schools are. are I think you've even written a newsletter about uh, some of the branding opportunities that these schools are using uh, to, to get their own labeled beers out there. So, like, oh, yeah. it just the the shift in some of these topics that are related to college athletics and you know name, image, and likeness is, is certainly one of them that has um, you know almost completely changed over. And I think a lot of that has to do with the influx of money. Everybody's seeing it. Everybody understands just the, the multi-million dollar deals that these TV networks are, uh, you know, adding to the bottom lines of the athletic departments. And as that discussion about those deals and, and about the media intrigue uh, for, for the upcoming deals has continued to increase in the kind of general conversation, I think there has been more of, of an insight from not only your your regular Joe fan, but the players themselves, the the athletic directors who are, who are starting to get younger and younger and more connected to uh, simply a sense of the fact that these these players, these are the reason that these million dollar deals are getting done. They, they should be able to get a share of some of that revenue that, that's coming their way. And at the very least, be able to profit on something that's theirs. It's their name, image and likeness. It, it is themselves. And so I think uh, that is key. And I think it's going to be fascinating, too, to follow this from from a legal perspective, because this is a big month, uh, not just with uh, the discussion <laughs> yes. over this bill. Uh, we we do anticipate the, the Alston ruling, which I think is, is going to be uh, another big uh, topic of topic du jour um, the rest of the month uh, related to this. And so I think it's it's really a lot on athletic directors plates, conference commissioners plates um, related to everything that is kind of going on all at one time. Yes, I agree with all that um, for for being the slow month on an existential front. This is going to absolutely not be a slow month. But the the, the thing I kind of want to talk about here a little bit. And I, I, pointing this out makes me feel like a little bit of a jerk, but I suspect on some level, at least in the world that I see, which is I talk to a lot of academics, talk to a lot of, of folks involved in, in the activism world within, within college sports, uh, people who I think are skeptical of the status quo, and, and even some more mainstream journalists. I think there's a little bit of an element of wish casting about how this kind of law or something similar to it would finally be the thing that completely upends the status quo. And there's a, a few things about unionization that I, I really do think are important to, to remember when you talk about this with college sports. Um, one, beyond the fact that like yeah, right now it's basically illegal. You, public employees can't really unionize in every part of the country anyway. Public employees of universities cannot unionize in other places. And you have to be an employee in order to have access to collective bargaining. And right now, that's that, that's not the law of the land for, for college athletes. This bill tries to address that. There are other potential avenues that could be redressed. It doesn't really matter what kind of leverage you think a college athlete has right now if they don't legally have the right to a labor union. Um, some 
athletes at private schools right now through the NLRB potentially could. Not everybody does. So that's the first step. And that is a, a much more difficult challenge, I think, to get through any kind of bipartisan uh, maneuvering than expanding name, image, and likeness, given, again, how polarizing uh, organized labor it is and what kind of financial interests are against expanding that. But the other thing is that even if that's allowed, there's no guarantee that anybody's actually going to pass a, an organizing vote. Right. So I, I, I can I can share this a little bit here about me. And I promise it's related to this issue at hand. I've been involved with organized labor in a couple of different places in my career. I used to be an elementary school teacher and eventually joined a, a teachers union there. I used to be involved in political organizing a long time ago uh, in the Midwest. And if you're a Democrat in the Midwest, chances generally the biggest political entity you're working with is going to be a labor union. And then when I worked at Vox as a writer, uh, I helped organize. A, I was involved in the union organizing effort there, and now now that's that's a unionized shop for full time employees. And I can tell you that one of the, one organizing a union under the best case scenario, small union uh, organization where people have a lot in common is really hard. The law does not make it super easy and it's become more difficult and where where it's been successful. And part of why I think you're seeing this grow more in like white collar digital media, it requires an enormous amount of personal trust because not everyone's uh, incentives and and alignment are are, uh, not everyone's financial incentives are completely aligned uh, within a writer's uh, unit or even a teacher's unit. You have people with different experience levels, people with different professional goals, people with different relationships with management. And over the course of any kind of collective bargaining, uh, not everybody is going to get everything that they want, which makes it hard. One of the things, I mean, I'm looking at this particular bill that defines a bargaining unit as like an athletic conference. I think it would be exceptionally difficult to organize a union across different sports at a university, even with people that know each other and are see each other all the time, because at a power five institution, you're going to have a handful of people that are going to be professional football and basketball players. And they have a, a, a very different interest in protecting their spending and their alignment and, and their goals than the bulk of Olympic sport athletes. The men and the women are going to have different uh, different goals. And I, I think if nothing else my skepticism of the ability for athletes to meaningfully organize in this manner uh, kind of bore out over the organizing efforts ahead of the pandemic this season. Because you would you would think if athletes ever had leverage to really demand anything, it would have been this year when it was pretty clear that we're doing this in large part because of money and we're asking athletes to shoulder an additional risk and a uh, medical risk and major personal sacrifices for no extra money. And not only did we not see any labor action, and not only did we see any like really sustained player organizing, but the places where we did, we got to see a breakup in real time. Like, do you remember what happened after the Big Ten United group, you know, first started issuing their statements ahead of the uh, ahead of the start of the season? Ohio State issued one that said they kept the, where their players distanced themselves from that. Like, ah, actually, like we think we're good with our with our with our school. And and you had you had uh, people at Nebraska and Iowa kind of undercutting whatever that message was. You had the whole Pac-12 group, and hey, that was a, a, a significant step forward in athlete activism. And did they get anything? Not really. Like the, the Pac-12 still started their season. They didn't share a dime of revenue. And a lot of the medical things that they were asking for never ended up happening. And most of them still played. So I look at that and think if when all those things are going for you, 
And you, you just showed how hard it is to organize, even if all this stuff happened. Um, it's hard for me to see that the, the, that kind of organizing on a large scale, because if you have a really transient group, a really young group, a group that mostly hasn't been involved in organized labor with really different interests, it's going to be very difficult to get them to be unified and collectively uh, you know, organize in a way that maybe a different industry might. Am I, am I, am I, am I being a Debbie Downer here? Like, does this, does this? No, I, yeah. I think you're spot on because I mean, look at j- even a union shop like the NFL, look at how difficult it is when they go into labor negotiations, how difficult it is and what the touch points are uh, in terms of those negotiations. The owners know that uh, the union is, is very broad based, right? Yeah. It's, it's every football player that plays in the NFL, but they know that when they put out some of those financial incentives that they want to change in the collective bargaining agreement, they know that some things are, are designed to, to kind of appeal to those on the lower end of the totem pole, not the Aaron Rodgers or the Tom Brady, those big time stars. It's designed to appeal to those lower end. So they know that they can get the votes to pass the, the, the deal. And, um, you know, that, that's the, that's the difficulty of any union. And when you talk about the NCA, you're talking about hundreds of sports, you know, thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of athletes uh, across multiple different divisions and levels. And, and it just, it is difficult to find consensus among 10 people, much less the, to- the, uh, the topic that we're talking about this one. And, and to me, that is kind of going to be, when we talk about group licensing, when we talk about, um, this union, unionization push, finding any kind of consensus, any kind of common ground, any kind of, uh, commonality um, among athletes is going to be probably the, the biggest challenge that anybody is going to face. And I think we've, we've already seen it. You mentioned the, the difference between the, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 uh, last summer. There, there's certainly one. And, and I know, you know, even among the, the local unionization efforts, I mean, at, at Northwestern years, years ago, there was there was some difficulty between the, the, the pr- person leading that charge and the rest of that team. So yep. that kind of points to the, the fact that those divisions are going to exist everywhere. And th- they exist without organized labor in uh, everywhere. Like there are no completely united locker rooms. There are cliques. There are people with different interests. Um, it's the Northwestern one is, is a good example where if on one side you have your athletic director, that's widely respected and your football coach that's both respected and has enormous power and influence over your lives and very powerful outside university interests and donors and part of that connection. Now the other side, you have a couple of athletes that maybe not everybody loves uh, or sees eye to eye with on a couple of issues, even within that very small group, you're, you're not going to win an election. Um, and and uh, that's something that every union organizing effort has to deal with. It's something that every locker room has to deal with. Anyway, like you want your actual leaders, both ideally to be good at sports. Like you, it's, you can't really have the 11th guy on the bench be your team captain. Um, and you also want them to be leaders uh, to kind of unite some, some of those particular fractious groups. And I know there are coaches that are concerned that any change in name, image, or likeness or any change in the status quo could disrupt all those things. I don't want to sit here and say that I don't think that unionization would benefit all athletes. I, 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 uh, I think for me personally, I think it's pretty clear that that we would certainly benefit revenue sport or not revenue sport, like the football headcount sports, particularly those at the power five level. Like there, I, I think financially, I think that they, they certainly would benefit. I don't know yet if it would be the best move for all athletes. I'm not saying it is or isn't. That, that's me saying, I, I think I need to study a little bit more. I am much, I'm really pessimistic about whether it's possible legally and then possible practically. 
even if it's something that I wanted to happen. There's a lot of things I'd like to happen in college sports that I'm pretty pessimistic about. Like, it would be cool if this was a more egalitarian, more wide open system and the, the teams from the Sun Belt and the American Athletic had a more legitimate chance. And, and if the NCAA basketball tournament had better, you know, at large options for SOCON teams, I would like those things. I don't, I'm not optimistic that those things are likely or maybe even possible given how things are legislatively set up. Uh, I want to talk about some of this in a little bit more detail, but before we do, since we've been talking about money and, and organizing and everything, I would like to very quickly talk about a couple of our sponsors. That's okay. Uh, one sponsor for this episode I'd like to tell you about is a book that's written by one of uh, the Extra Points readers that may be really useful for some of this audience. One of the things I think is really cool about not just going for two, but Extra Points is that you have a lot of the readership that are, and I, I say this with love, right? You're, you're just huge nerds. You don't work in college sports. You care about all the, the nitty gritty, about everything to get, look, you're my people. I love you. God bless you. Uh, I, I please like, and subscribe. Right. We also have a group of people that work in this industry, people who are commissioners, athletic directors, directors of marketing and operations. Uh, and, and this is a book that might be more interesting to some of that group. Uh, Dr. Dan Freeman uh, has a new book out here that's explaining that as college athletics heads into this new world we've been talking about with name, image, and likeness, Power Conference is getting even more power uh, and brand building becoming the name of the game, not just for athletes, but for all institutions. Your school's ability to generate revenue are of utmost importance. Enter the Athletic Giving Handbook. This book's main focus is on lower tier division one, two, and three institutions that need to do more with less, but it would be beneficial for everybody, even if you are a behemoth like my alma mater. Uh, it is designed with easy to follow step-by-step instructions on how to evaluate and improve your, dev- your departmental fundraising while providing the flexible and adaptable templates from which you can build that fundraising operation that works best for you. Covers everything from giving materials to how to identify donors, how to track their data, how to how to cultivate and grow a pipeline, all of this and more. You can find this and reach the author at your athletic giving handbook at gmail.com. We will have a link to this book in the show notes. This is useful information, I think, to a lot of our audience in, in different in different subgroups. I also want to remind you that this podcast is uh, part of Extra Points, which is my newsletter that publishes four days a week that digs right into the nitty gritty about how all this stuff works. We've written a lot about legislation, about college athletics reform at the state and the local and the federal level. We've talked a lot about how schools get their money and what they do with that money. I have a, a just a, literally, I, when we're done with this call here, I'm putting, finishing up another co- low-level conference realignment update newsletter. I've got a newsletter coming out here highlighting some of the uh, weirdest live college mascot stories. Not everything is super uh, in the weeds. Sometimes we get to have some fun digging into the newspapers.com archive and reading about really the, the truly alarming number of institutions that have decided to have live bears on campus and live bears that they just like let live in fraternity houses and stuff and fed them Dr. Pepper, right? Uh, this is this is what supports everything. And if you like this podcast and if you like these kinds of stories, you're going to love extra points. You can subscribe for free at extrapointsmb.com and get two extra points newsletters a week, as well as this podcast. But if you want the full experience, you want access to our special subscriber only discord. You want access to archives with over 150 previously published newsletters, and you want four newsletters a week. Well, you can become a paid subscriber. And it's the good news is dear listener. If you use promo code 
podcast at checkout, you get 20% off either a monthly or an annual subscription. That means you can get a monthly subscription for under six bucks. There's a lot of dumb things you could do with $6. Uh, In my humble opinion, using that promo code and getting yourself the full extra points experience to make you a more knowledgeable fan and and, uh, a worker within college athletics, that's a good use. That's way better than maybe going to Wendy's. So you can hit, hit all of that up. Extra points, mb.com, promo code, podcast. Um, that's a lot, Brian. That's that's that that's a lot. That's a lot to dig into here. It's 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 a lot to to see how um, the federal government is at least parts of it are much more interested in being more heavily involved in the day-to-day here in college sports. And it, it's a lot here to really kind of define what it is that we're doing. I, I mean. If we were to go back and just start college athletics completely from scratch, ignoring everything that we did with Rutgers and Lafayette and Dartmouth and all these other schools before either of our grandparents were born, do you think we'd still do things the same way? No, <laughs> very simple. You know, the, like the, the NCAA and, and college sports in general, it only really exists in this country in this form, right? Yeah. You, know, you go worldwide, uh, whether you're going to Germany or, or Japan, you know, they, they do have teams associated with colleges, sure. But most of the development at the youth and, and uh, teen level, a lot of it's tied to local clubs, you know, and, and I think if we were to redo everything, um, you would almost have like NFL feeder clubs. You know, like, you, you know, if you wanted to go commit to, uh, say, say the Dallas Cowboys youth team, you know, I, I think that would be the one way you would be able to play football in the state of Texas. You know, it would be something like that, um, you know, almost uh, pretty similar to how we see European soccer happen, uh, certainly at the, at the youth stages. I think it would be much more aligned with that um, involving uh, almost uh, the, the organization at the pro level filtering down um, instead, of, instead of this current system, because uh, this is just such a unique enterprise. It's a unique enterprise, uh, not just in the United States, but, but worldwide. And I think that's given us a huge advantage, you know, in, in certain sports, but it's also kind of held us back. And I think that's why there is so much hand wringing over uh, some of these current issues that we're discussing. Yeah. It's very clear. Nobody else does it this way. Um, one of the things that's fascinating, and I've, I've read about this the past couple of months as I try to become a better global citizen and talk to my sister a lot, who's living in Brazil now and is shocked at how different almost every institution is uh, from both uh, professional soccer to banana availability in grocery stores. Let me tell you, Brian, we are getting shortchanged, man. South Americans have way better banana options. But um, a lot of them really have pretty heavily involvements within the federal government. You have departments of sport. You have the federal government that even charters some of these youth organizations, or sometimes they're running I mean, in Germany. Some of them are, are literally run in conjunction with the military. So we might have a Dallas Cowboys youth feeder system and like U.S. Army Sports Academy, and, and you might have, you know, all, all number of little things things there. I don't know that we're ever going to replicate that exactly, but you know, one of the, the, the fascinating things to follow over these couple of months, I I think it's really important to kind of keep reiterating is this, a lot of this just evolved by accident. It it evolved by a couple of choices that a couple of people made 120 years ago. And we're kind of duct taping and, and, and throwing up veneer and balsa wood and building this airplane as we go along. And maybe now it's time to revisit some of those things that we kind of took for granted uh, that maybe don't have to be that the way that they are, whether that is, does an athlete have to be a complete amateur? 
How do we even define an amateur? How do we share that money? And does everything necessarily have to be through this system? We've had multiple now competitors to college basketball that have opened up here over the last year. It looks like we're getting some more. And I don't think the world's going to end necessarily, right? Like, are, are you going to be less likely to care about college basketball if 25 players join overtime? No, I, I don't think so. And I think for a lot of fans out there, I mean, this is what makes college sports so unique is you're so tied to your school. You know, it's where you grew up rooting for it. It's where you certainly got a degree from or, uh, you know, attended on, on fall Saturdays yeah. with uh, your, your family members. I mean, you are so tied to, you know, kind of that, that, that brand that I, I don't think it really kind of matters. And that's why, you know, a lot of the, the schools, certainly in their arguments before the Supreme Court have made that argument that, uh, you know, look, this is uh, all, all about the name on the front of the jersey not the one on the back. And uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how how fan perceptions are, are going to change when maybe they do see that quarterback pop up uh, doing a car commercial. Maybe, maybe that does make some a little less, you know, willing to kind of uh, jump on board and, and, and buy that extra T-shirt. But uh, maybe not. Maybe it goes the other way. Uh, I think it's just it's just going to be a fascinating really summer as we start to see these deals really start to pop up. But I think ultimately it will reach kind of a, a stasis standpoint where, yeah, everybody gets used to kind of the new normal and and we kind of move on from there and uh, ultimately the, the games are still going to happen you're still going to tune in on on saturday to, to watch college football you're still going to you know catch the ncaa tournament and and see all those those buzzer beaters and and uh, life is going to go on and things are going to be different but uh i think it's going to be uh, a bit of a, a roller coaster until we get there yeah i i have a hard time believing anybody under 40 that tells me that if if this one change happens i'm out on college sports feel like people are not really very good at predicting their future behavior. You know what would make, I think it is way more likely someone's out on college sports if their team becomes Kansas football and enters some kind of like decade mega irrelevance rather than anything that's happening vis-a-vis bag men or commercials or long-term health insurance or medical coverage or anything there on the back end. If they're good, um, you're going to keep watching. You're going to keep watching even if the college football helmets turn into NASCAR cars and there's a gigantic Bitcoin ad that's like stuck on the front of a Purdue jersey. I really do think, especially people at 40 and 35 and under, I really think they're going to keep watching. I absolutely agree. I mean, you mentioned the, the Kansas football fan. I mean, even if they're not tuning in to, to, to watch a, a dreadful, winless Kansas football team, they still want that football team to do well and they still want the university to do well. And so I think there's still, you know, that, that attachment to, to what is going on with the school and, and how the teams are performing. I mean, I, I, I was noting to this week, you know, how, how excited some fans were getting, you know, on social media, we, we just saw the, the college world series brackets announced and how everybody's so excited. They might not watch a game uh, of college baseball all season long, but man, their, their team one. got into the regional, you know, and, and they're <laughs> discussing it like they're experts. So it's like, you know, come on, like, like everybody, has that attachment and I, I don't think that that is going away and I do think it's interesting to see as younger fans especially get more attached to players in particular um, we, we see that certainly at the NBA level uh, guys ch- change teams so often it's kind of hard to kind of build in that brand equity that um, you know they're becoming more and more fans of players themselves how does that translate to the college level and you mentioned the overtime elite some of these other um, you know kind of setups where you can kind of go 
go pro outside of the the NCAA system. And uh, I, I think that is going to be more of an interesting thing to kind of look at. Our teams, our, our fans going to be more, uh, you know, drilled down into the players themselves and, and follow them throughout that path. Uh, or will they, they mind, you know, kind of rooting for, you know, Duke, even if they're a North Carolina fan, even uh, just because they like a particular player, maybe he went to their high school or something like that. So I, I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, you know, kind of how fandom itself changes. And, and we kind of got a good glimpse of that this summer with uh, the European Super League as well and how showing how fans are so attached to their teams no matter what ultimately ends up happening around them i think the european super league is is an interesting comparison because my understanding is that god bless them european soccer fans are way more likely to riot than american sports fans they're way more likely to tell their billionaire owner exactly where they can stick it Uh, Whereas here you have a lot more apologists, right? Like the whole screaming, you know, leveraged buyout from Manchester United fans at their own owner is something that doesn't really happen as much in America. But if there's going to be a riot anywhere, by God, it's going to be with college sports, Uh, not with the NFL, um, where where people I think are going to be much more likely to flock and protect the shield. But yeah, you raise an interesting question that maybe I should try to dig into a little bit more in some future newsletters, because how does that player focused fan culture run in a world where college sports, you're only on the roster maximum five years. You're generally only in the public consciousness for two or three, maybe you transfer once. That's not a, as you're not going to, you're not in the college athletic universe long enough to build a, a player specific, you know, fandom, I guess that spans across multiple schools. Like you might, if you're LeBron James, where you're in the limelight for years and years. Maybe that changes. Maybe that changes um, in a world with where, with more liberalized transfers. Maybe that change kind of full circle. And then maybe would you like this world where athletes are able to build more of a promotional media empire independent of the brand at the front of their u- uniform? You know, right now, player availability, forget endorsing. Player availability is really hyper-controlled in college. You and I, even if we want to, don't generally get a chance to really get to know too many college athletes. You got to go through the SID. You only have so many media availabilities. Uh, the, the, a lot of those specific questions are, are kind of shielded depending on what school you're dealing with. That's going to change a little bit with Instagram and with Twitter and with video and some of these marketing things. Maybe that does change. I don't know. That, that, that would be something that's certainly worth uh, some increased scrutiny and scholarship, I think. Well, I think you can go back a couple of years. You remember when Zion was was coming in and, and Duke. I, I think he brought a lot of attention to that program, uh, not just because it was it was Duke and yeah. it was this traditional powerhouse, but because Zion had so many fans from him as a high school and, and his exploits, especially on social media, that I think it did you know increase. You look at the ratings that year for Duke basketball games; they were way up compared to previous years. And, and I think a lot of that was just a casual fan attachment to that player. And I, I think you can even kind of flip it around as well, going to your alma mater with Ohio state i think justin fields and what he did last year to get the big 10 to play and some of the pressure that he was putting on i think it earned him some fans you know around not only around the big 10 but uh, i think around the country saying you know what he was doing as an athlete as a student as a spokesman for his university for his team uh, i think a lot of people liked to see that side of him and uh you know became fans of him and maybe they're chicago bear fans or not but you know i think for a lot of those big 10 fans that uh were were out there that are chicago bears fans i think they're ecstatic now you know much more so than if uh, they, you know, the, the Bears had just drafted an Ohio State quarterback. No, they drafted Justin Fields, somebody who they did have an attachment to, despite he, him probably dropping four or five touchdowns on him uh, during a game in the fall season. I think you're a little bit more amenable to him being the, the starting quarterback uh, for the Bears now, uh, based on what he did last summer. That's a good point. 
It's a good point. It, one, I mean, man, it made a lot of that pre-draft criticism of Fields about like not liking football enough just sound really freaking stupid. Like as, as if nobody. Well, the same for Trevor Lawrence, right? right? You know, the, the nobody, same thing was thrown on Twitter him. Nobody had a Twitter account over the last like summer. Yeah. Like he, yeah, these two guys were were public, you know, face the campaign to bring back football. You know, you're you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Um, for a, a a certain kind of person, the it Fields. Uh, personality and and what he's about and his 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 brand became much more expansive than just a guy that absolutely baptized like Rutgers football <laughs> to see if touchdown passes uh, over multiple times. Um, we're I think we're going to have a little bit more on some of these legislative changes here on extra points just because that is the biggest news of the day, uh, and so that's what we're going to be kicking at here. I know here in my home state of Illinois, it looks like they're they're likely to pass a name image and likeness bill now. Louisiana, I think, will be joining them very shortly as well. Um, and then we're going to have a couple of things that have nothing to do, hopefully, with with Congress or explicit partisan politics uh, over the next couple of weeks. Brian, I know you're kind of in between projects right now. What else are you working on, and where can people find? you. Well, I mean, it's uh, it's an interesting time, you know, as, as we've been talking now, not only in terms of the, the legislation that's been passing, but uh, recruiting is, has been opened up, you know, it's, it's past June 1st. And so it's like Christmas. Um, you know, I saw the other day, you know, Florida State at 1201 on June 1st, we're opening their doors, letting recruits in that I think that is going to be one of the more dominant storylines oh, yeah. uh, throughout this month, a lot of news on, on that front. And, and I think a lot of news uh, as well, we mentioned the Alston ruling. So uh, a lot, a lot of stuff to follow on this podcast on your newsletter and uh, you can always check my stuff out as well on, on my twitter feed at brian d fisher you can find me at matt brown ep on twitter.com and you can find extra points at www.extrapointsmb.com hey if you're not a paid subscriber yet now's a great time to hop on board use promo code podcast to save 20 percent um i've got a couple other things that i'm working on doing here with extra points uh that i think you may enjoy and of course if you enjoy this podcast uh, let people know smash that subscribe button on apple or spotify or whatever carrier pigeon brought you know brought you the transcription of this particular podcast help people find it that helps us in more ways that you know thank you so much for listening and for sticking around we'll catch up with you next week <laughs>